0: You know, I've been reading through the life of David recently, and, uh, and one of the things that, you know, as the king, that you're concerned about is dignity. I mean, I think you would agree with that. You're concerned about how you appear. You're concerned about what people think about you. You're concerned about how you look at any given moment at any given time, and there's this great story in the life of David in which David takes, and he does something utterly undignified. He grabs his robes. I think this is what the nakedness refers to, and he pulls up his robes, and he ties them off at his thigh. And then he dances before the Lord with all his might. And, and here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't take the ark of the Lord into like a little private room or whatever and then send out all his attendants, you know, and then dance before the Lord with all his might. What he does is he dances before the Lord with all his might in the presence of the whole nation of Israel undignified or not. Cause his wife thought it was like, she called him out on it. She said, listen, man, that was embarrassing. That was humiliating. You just, you know, you, you I mean, you, you bared your legs, like culturally, that's a major no, no, that was utterly and totally undignified. And what did he say? Like he couldn't disagree more strongly. He said, Oh, listen, honey, if you think that is undignified, stick around. Cause it's just going to get worse or better. The psalmist writes this, Psalm 89, verse 15. He says, blessed are the people. And you want to be that, right? Like nobody hears that and goes, I'm not interested in that program. I don't know what you're going to say next, but I don't want the blessings of the Lord. Blessed are the people who know. That's an experience. It's not a knowledge. I read about it in a book and now I know all about it and I can pass the quiz. It's not what he's talking about. Biblical knowledge is experiential. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. The shout of praise. Blessed are those people. And where does that shout come from? That shout comes from a valuing of Christ that is so profound in here that you can't keep it in here. Not in the way that you sing, not in the way that you praise, not in the way that you work, not in the way that you live, not in the way that you parent, not in the way that you're a husband or a wife, and not in anything or in any other place as well. It comes from in here. And it comes from the hearts of people who know why they're here. So as we continue asking and answering questions here at Rio, we come today to one of the most fundamental questions in life. You knew this one was going to be asked and answered hopefully at least from the Bible at some point. And the question is, why am I here? And if you don't mind, I want to step back from that question and ask an even bigger question. I want to ask the question of why is anything here? Why does anything at all exist? Because if God exists, and if He is in fact the God of the Bible, then the Bible comes to us with a God who is in no sense deficient, ever. Like from eternity past, He's never had a need. So He didn't wake up one day and go, Oh man, I am so bored, so I'm going to create a universe today. That didn't happen. He was never unfulfilled, like he never had feelings of inadequacy, you know, he was not kind of hoping to establish his value. And he thought, well, maybe if I create a universe and it's really amazing, somebody will value me or I'll feel better about myself. No, God can't feel better about himself. He's God. He didn't say, you know what, I'm lonely, so I think I'm going to make people... And then I'm going to put them on this tiny little planet in a tiny little solar system that's located in kind of a nondescript area of a frankly kind of a mediocre galaxy that's one of a hundred billion or so galaxies that I'm going to create as a part of the great big universe. Because I'm, I'm, I'm missing out. Like I just, I need something to do. I'm unfulfilled. I want to talk to somebody. Why is anything here? The answer to that is because there is something that God delights in. And not only that does he delight in it, but he delights in seeing other people delight in it. And the something that God delights in that he wants to see, I'm just going to say it, you delight in, is himself. He is altogether and wholly delightful. Now, if I said that, that would be the most arrogant, ridiculous, and unself aware statement that could ever be said. Like if I came to you and went, I find myself to be unfathomably delightful. Like if you had any clue how delightful I was, yeah, like you wouldn't even be able to sleep at night. And so because I know that I am so unbelievably delightful and I know that if you knew how delightful I was, you would delight in me. And frankly, then I would delight in your delight in me. I'm going to bombard you with me because I'm pretty sure you're going to be happy about that. Nuts. But if God exists and if he's the God of the Bible, not nuts. Because by definition, he is the most delightful being, thing, object, person in the entirety of the universe, therefore. It's not arrogant for him to want us to delight in him and for him to share his delight with us. It's gracious. It's loving. It's amazing. It should challenge what we delight ourselves with. C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily satisfied. My goodness, we settle for this when we can have this (laughs) so why did god create anything like why does everything exist it all exists for this reason to communicate god to me and to you and everyone else that's it david says as much psalm 19 beginning of verse 1 real famous statement you probably know it he says the heavens what is he talking about he's talking about the universe the heavens declare what's the message of the heavens the glory of god there it is And the sky above proclaims his handiwork, the works of his hands day to day, pours out nonstop speech about him and night to night reveals nonstop knowledge about him. In fact, he says, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And you say, all right, so their message is the glory of God. I got it. I just have no idea what that is. I mean, it sounds amazing, Tom, the glory of God, like I go, wow, and then, yeah, I don't know, I got nothing after that. Like, what does that mean? What is the glory of God? It's the sum total of all the attributes of God. It's the sum total of all of the things that God possesses in infinite measure that make God, God. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So for example... God is wise. That is one of his attributes. And in fact, God is infinitely wise. And here's what that means, practically speaking, for all of us who have finite minds. And that's all of us. It means that we with our finite minds for forever will continually be discovering the wisdom of God and we will never reach a day in which we fully comprehend the extent of his wisdom. So we can't do that, but we can look out into the universe. And when we do, we see galaxies like this. That is NGC 1300. I I mean, that's not an original name. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, here's the deal. When there's 100 billion of them, at some point you punt and go with numbers, don't you? Like, what should we call that one? You know, 42. And that's all I got at this point, right? I mean, but take it in. Keep looking, then you see this. That's the majestic sombrero galaxy. That one, like, had to have a name. No number for that, that's too good. And then you see this. That is a rose made of galaxies, several galaxies. You see the one in the tail down there in the bottom. And then the next one is the Whirlpool Galaxy. It has another galaxy in its tail there at the end, you can see it. It's remarkable, it's amazing. God is altogether wise. And with our minds, we cannot even begin to fully at least comprehend the greatness and the the majesty of his wisdom. But but here's what we can do. We can look out into the universe and with our technology today, we can see things like this and we can just go, wow. (laughs) And through the faculty of our imagination, try to imagine a God that wise. The beauty, the order the design, the intelligence, something to behold. But not only is God wise, God is also generous, and incidentally, he is an infinitely generous God. So what that means is that we will never exhaust his generosity, and neither, with our finite minds, will we ever fully comprehend it. So we can't do that, but we can look at things in the created order, like the apple tree, for example. And we can say to ourselves, why did God create an apple tree that produces thousands of apples, not just two? Like you can imagine apple trees, you know, two apples a year and one has a worm. (laughs) Who would want that one? And we'd all be fighting over the apple, right? I mean, the apple would be sold for like a million dollars. We have 486,000 apples worldwide or, you know, whatever the number. But you get the idea God created a tree that produces thousands of apples a year. Why? To feed the hungry. Because he's generous. He gives an abundance. We see it with wheat. When he created wheat, he didn't create husks of wheat. Incidentally, is that what that's called, that thing on the end? Is that a husk? Anyway, I'm just going to go with it until somebody corrects me later. So some farmer, tell me what it is. But he didn't create husks of wheat that just have one or two grains of of wheat in it. He created them with hundreds of grains of wheat. Did you know that the state of Kansas alone, just the state of Kansas, produces enough wheat every single year to give every person on the planet a loaf of bread? Just Kansas. Kansas. Why did he do that? To tell us something about himself. To feed the hungry. To care for the needy. He's saying, Look, I want you to to know something about my heart, and I I could keep going, but let me ask this question Where, Where do all these plants come from? Like all the trees, all the fruit trees? You can do this with any fruit tree. All the fields full of grain and any other kind of grain, any plant on Earth, like, where do they all come from? And you're like, "Well, they came from God OK, But organically, like agriculturally, how did he design those plants to come? Because he designed them so as to teach us about him. They come from seeds, seeds that are cut off from their life source and die and then are then buried. You're not really expecting a lot from that seed, are you, unless you've designed it. That which is died and buried to come forth from the ground. And to come forth bringing life. And not just alive itself, but like offering life to other people like apple trees and orange trees and wheats and whatever. You call, I mean, you get the idea? It's abundant life that comes forth out of death and burial. It's no wonder that Jesus, who is God, made man if you believe the scriptures comes to us and he describes the glory of his sufferings and the glory of his death and the glory of his burial and the glory of his resurrection. He rises to bring life. How does he describe it? In John 12, beginning in verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the son of man, that's Jesus, to do what? To be glorified. Well, what's that going to look like? He says, well, you guys know how plants work, right? Right? So let's just make that analogy. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if I die, he's saying, it comes forth from the ground is the idea. And it bears much fruit for all takers, free of charge. It's remarkable. Westminster Shorter Catechism Question number four asks the question, what is God? Not who is God, not where is God, not when is God, not how is God. What? What's the answer? God is a spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Are you ready for the list? In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. To which I add love. Because John comes to us and he says specifically, God is love. So what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, and love. What is that list? It's a list of attributes. It's saying that's what God is. That is his glory. He, are, he is those things in infinite measure. And those are the things that make God God. And the point that I'm trying to make is that he's created everything that exists as vehicles through which to communicate himself and those attributes to me and to you. And incidentally, everything that exists includes me and you. And so then that's the answer to our question of why am I here? I am here to delight in God. Like to just, just find my absolutely everything in him to realize and recognize and experience knowingly how delightful he is and i'll never never exhaust how delightful he is because he's infinitely delightful which is the great thought of heaven frankly but not just to delight in in myself but to help other people delight in him how by living a life that shows how delightful that he is that communicates his attributes by the power of his spirit who lays hold of us in obedience to his word which shapes and forms our minds and values and hearts and so forth. I'm to go out and to live a life that looks less and less like me and more and more like him and in the doing of that to reveal to people just how glorious he is and we live in a world that needs to know what real glory looks like. In John 8 verse 12, Jesus speaking of himself It says, I am the light of the world, you know? And when you survey the Bible and you consider what it says about light and you compare that to who Jesus is, you go, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, light is the creative gift of God. The Bible opens with the first recorded words of God, let there be light. Well, what is Christ? He is that God made man specially, supernaturally conceived and created by the Holy Spirit, that he might take upon himself a body like mine and yours and enter into this world and walk our streets and experience our pain. Assume our sorrows and sin and everything else. Be able to identify with us in our weakness, in our struggles, in our joys, in our laughter. He's the creative gift of God to you. Light is associated with the presence of God in the Bible. Well, What is Jesus if not the very presence of God. God made man, light brings sight. In other words, to see, it allows you to do that. And so does Christ. So to see Jesus, he says, is to see God. And I want to extend that and say, and to see God is to then to begin to see everything else rightly. You see people rightly, you see brokenness rightly. You see failure as redemptive opportunities. You see yourself and all that you have and all that you are. It all gets refigured and recalculated in light of who God is. You see God and everything else gets reprioritized and revalued and rightly so. Light in the Bible represents that which is pure and true and wise. And that's, that's who and what Jesus is. Light is given specifically to rule over darkness. And oh, how we struggle with darkness. Christ is saying, bring me your darkness. Light represents the favor of God. I find great relief in that. No matter how hard I try to earn the favor of God, I don't have a shot. God is so great, God is so glorious that what he deserves and therefore demands, because it would be wrong, and he doesn't do wrong, for him to demand less than he deserves. It would be to lessen himself what he deserves because of his greatness. And that's where we fail. We don't see that. Is absolute perfect devotion from me and from you. Okay, well, that undoes us. Jesus enters into the world as a God-made man, a man for mankind who lives the perfectly devoted life and who then gives us the favor of the Lord. He has it in infinite measure. It's not like he has only so many units, you know, and we're all going, I don't know, man, I better get in line early. I mean, if you want to get in line early, that's great. But but he freely gifts it. And then light is necessary for life. If the light went out in the sky, everything would die, and everyone with it. And that's what Jesus offers. He offers abundant life. He offers eternal life. And so when he says, look, I'm the light of the world, okay, it makes sense, but he doesn't stop there. He then goes on, and in Matthew 5, 14, he says, you guys who have brought your brokenness to me Who have seen me, and in seeing me, have seen God, and in seeing God, have seen yourself and realized your need, and that I'm the one who meets it. Okay, you are the light of the world. So, what is he saying? He's saying that we were made to live lives that reflect the light of who Jesus really is and of what Jesus is really like. And in that sense, I think we're very much like the moon. Have you ever taken a look at the moon, like up close? I've got a picture of it. It's not really attractive. You know the moon is damaged. The moon has taken a beating. I mean you can just tell. The moon has the scars and the and the pockmarks of of that beating left to itself. Not a lot of glory there. Not a lot of beauty. But when it is full of the light of the sun, then it's breathtaking. You get the point. Listen when when we live lives that are full of the light of the sun that are oriented toward God for the purpose of reflecting God then we look beautiful when we don't when we live lives that pursue the glory of other things then we look like that and he's calling us to something better Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2 beginning in verse 14 I want you to imagine yourself trying to do this in traffic, okay? Sorry to go there, but that's where it went for me immediately. I thought, oh, crud. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That would make you different. But you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, children look like their parents children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And then he says, among whom you shine as lights. Actually, what it says is among whom you shine as stars. That's the real word in the world. So then what are stars like? Well, for one thing, stars are constant. They don't ever stop shining. They just shine and they shine all the time. They don't take a nap. They don't go on vacation. They don't say, oh, I'm so sick of shining like this is... No, no, no. It's their nature to shine. It's their joy to shine. It's why they're there. It's to shine and in so doing to communicate things about God to us and maybe even about what we're to be like since that's the analogy Paul makes. Stars are constant and you can't blot out the stars. You know, you can go in the house But here's what you can't do. You can't, like, get up on a ladder, you know, and reach up into the sky and unscrew it like it's a light bulb or something. Like, you can't blot it out. Stars are consistent. You can navigate the land and seas by the stars. Stars are transcendent. No matter what happens on earth, they stand above it all. Stars are bright. They pierce the darkness from unfathomable distances. It's incredible how bright they are. And then lastly, stars are beautiful. I think there's to be a beauty to our life, and I think that we can have a beautiful life if sort of like the moon we orient ourselves toward the glory of Christ. It's His beauty, and it's a reflected beauty. It's remarkable. And it's a beauty that grows as you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. You know, there's a great story in the Old Testament about Moses who goes up, and he spends time with God on the mountain of God, if you know the story, and then he comes down, And his face is glowing, like literally with the glory of God. And, you know, some people kind of freak out about that. I mean, it looks like he's been turned over and dipped in, you know, glow stick stuff or something. And so it's like, what in the world happened to you? And so he veils his face, but he veils his face not simply because it's unsettling to see a glowing man. He veils his face because he realizes that it's fading. He doesn't want to reveal that. What does Moses bring us? Moses brings us the law. What does the law do for us? Well, it does a lot of things, guys, but one of the things it does for us is it reveals without question that we are lawbreakers. It's like a wet paint sign, okay? You get the idea? Like, you see a wet paint sign, and even if you're like 60, you touch the wall. (laughs) And just so you know, if you see a wet paint sign around here and you touch the wall, everything's on camera. All right, so we don't need the FBI to figure out who did it. We just. But you just do, and that's what the law is. It, like, it gives us opportunity to mess up, and we can't resist it. It brings bondage. It brings failure. It brings death. And it sets up a contrast with the glory of Jesus that Paul sees. He knows the Moses story. He says, let me tell you about the glory of Jesus. He says, now the Lord, this is 2 Corinthians 3, is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Why do you sing? Why does David dance? Because you're free. And that freedom has gripped you in here and it just just comes out out here. It's like it just, you know, you don't have to work on it. It just happens. It brings freedom from sin. It brings freedom from guilt. It brings freedom from shame. See, last week's message, it, it brings freedom from having to, to try to orient my life in this panic-stricken kind of way to, to hopefully please God, and I don't know, maybe somehow I'll pass the test at the end of the deal if I can just, you know, there's no shot at that. It brings freedom from that, which brings joy and relief. It brings freedom from having to constantly pursue lesser glories that don't make us shine and that don't make us beautiful and that don't give us what they promise. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, he says, and here's now how we are to live, with unveiled face. That's David's talk to his wife. She's like, that was utterly undignified. He's like, hang around. It's going to get worse. And I'm going to let you know that in advance. I will not veil the glory of God as I'm going to express it in worship or in any other aspect of my life. These people need to see it. And I can't contain it anyway, so. And it's not undignified. It's the most dignified thing you can do. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that's Jesus, are being transformed into the same glorious image as the idea from one degree of glory to another and it's escalating glory. It's an increasing glory. It's not fading. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So let's go back to the stars for a minute, okay? Back to the whirlpool galaxy. I showed you this galaxy, the fourth of, you know, like 100 billion but the fourth of four today, Um, not because I think it's the coolest galaxy. I do really think that it's a cool galaxy, and I'm sure the Lord feels affirmed to hear me say that, But, but I do. I think it's awesome. The reason I showed this to you, and I've shown this here in the past, but it's been a long time, is because years ago, scientists zoomed in through the Hubble telescope on the core, the center of the galaxy, and they took a picture, and that's what it looks like. That's not, you know, like Hollywood didn't make that up. Some graphic artist didn't go, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we... They just took a picture of the core. Now, the scientists look at that, and they call that the X core. So they see an X in the middle of the whirlpool galaxy. I see a cross, but, you know, like I'm a pastor, so that automatically I'm weird, okay? So just right out of the gate, I'm an oddball. If you don't want to talk to somebody on an airplane, just tell them you're a pastor. That ends the whole conversation. (laughs) They'll put their noise-canceling headphones on and put a pillow there, you know. Whatever. But I see a cross, and, and in the cross, I see the object that for me most clearly reveals the glory of God's humility, the glory of God's selflessness, the glory of God's grace, the glory of God's love. And what I want you to walk out understanding is if that, not that core, but if that cross is at the core of your life, okay, here's what's going to (laughs) happen. Not sometimes, not maybe. No, if it's really there, like, and it's laying hold of you and you're leaning into it in ever-increasing measure without having to even try, you're going to produce the fruit like a fruit tree. It doesn't squeeze out an orange. I'm going to work real hard today to make an orange. It's a fruit tree. It it produces orange. Just easy. You're going to begin to produce the fruit of the attributes of the humility of God and of the selflessness of God, of the willingness to sacrifice and lay down your life like God of His love, of His grace, of His wisdom as you fill your mind and heart with it from His Word, of His power as you go way beyond your native abilities again and again and again. And you will do it failingly, and you will mess it up sometimes and just have to go back. And that's okay. There's grace for that. Frankly, because of the fact that the glory of God is manifested in in clay and even in broken vessels, it doesn't shine forth less gloriously. It shines forth more. Tom, I know all your weaknesses. I know what your struggles are. I know, you know your frustrations. I know that you're impatient. I know that, and when I see you doing something contrary to your nature, I see someone else alive in you. Get it? So why am I here? Why are you here? We are here to delight ourselves in the Lord. To worship the Lord. To come before him in dancing and in singing. To spend time with him. Because that's the most valuable time we get to spend. And because we can't not do it. It feeds our soul. We are here to delight in the Lord. And then to help other people delight in him. And find and discover the delight that is him how? By living lives that shine forth his glory to a world full of people, guys, who need to see what real glory looks like, okay? So I close with this. Just chew on this before you come to the table this morning. Whose glory or what glory have you oriented your life toward? Like, what glory are you revealing, reflecting, shining? Because we want you to look like the beautiful moon. Why? Because Christ is beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the power of your spirit. We praise you for the life that is found in your word. We praise you for the presence of our savior. We praise you, Lord, that there is true glory and that you allow us the privilege of reflecting it in any way. God, forgive our sins. Lord, bring us back to Jesus. Help us to come to him and find in him light and life. So lay hold of our heart and implant your cross in the midst of our being that we can't not shine forth in a way that is constant, in a way that cannot be blotted out, in a way that is transcendent, in a way that is beautiful. Lord, for you are beautiful. Do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, before you come here, uh, work that through. You know, why am I here? Okay, I'm here to reflect the glory of Jesus. What, What glory, whose glory have I oriented myself toward? What right now have I been reflecting in my life? You know what repentance is? It's a turning. It's not an I'm sorry. It's a I'm sorry and holy cow, I need to get this right. Lord, by your spirit with your people, turn me this way toward you that I might reflect you. And not this, because this is compelling to me. This is maybe an addiction for me. This is, this is a strong draw for me, Lord. Move me. Forgive me. Fill me. That's repentance. So repent. If you're a Christian, this table is for you. And it is a table not of shame and not of guilt. It is a table of absolute and utter joy. It's with joy that you leave the table knowing that your sins are forgiven because you've repented and and given them to the Lord and and knowing that he is powerful. So don't leave here in guilt. Leave here with strength and motivation to go out and, and let people know about Christ. Do that. If you are not a Christian yet, but you're here and you're kind of spectating it, you're taking it in, you're one of our spectators or maybe a fan, we love you. We are so honored that you are here. It is awesome to have you with us. Consider what Jesus offers you. Just pray where you're at. Come talk to us after the service. Matt's going to talk about Alpha at the end of the service. Great opportunity for you to just explore Christianity and and the big issues of life. Take, Take us up on that. And then after you've come to faith in Jesus, then know that this table is for you. That everything he offers to everybody else, he offers to you. We're no different. We've just accepted the offer. That's it. But otherwise, please come forward, okay? Paul says this. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I'm going to pray. Our elders are going to take their spots, and then you do business with the Lord and, and come when you feel like it. Lord, thank you for this table. Thank you for the Savior that it proclaims. And may he be proclaimed to us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.